Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. The Bible says that we are going to be people encased in human frailty that are going to experience for the rest of our lives sin. It's going to be a regular part of our lives. Something, of course, that we are to work on to control and to mitigate and to try and lessen in our lives. But sin is a part of reality, not only for the non-Christian, but even for the Christian. We struggle with it. We make wrong decisions. We do things that don't live up to the high moral standards of God. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we won't wrestle with sin anymore. In fact, it's going to be something we'll have to deal with for the rest of our lives. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is encouraging us to acknowledge our sin each time we encounter it and learn to make the right response to wrong decisions. It's so easy to get defensive and justify our actions. But as we're learning today from the Ammonites, it's better to seek peace instead of war. Well, let's get started. group of elementary school students put together a book of wisdom of life. And here's some of the excerpts that were included. Number one, when you want something expensive, ask your grandparents. That's a pretty good one. Don't smart off to your teacher when her eyes and ears are twitching. That was another one. Never tell your mother that her diet isn't working. When your dad is mad and he asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. Never trust your dog to watch your food. Don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. And my favorite, when you go out to feed the seagulls, wear a hat. That's a good idea. This morning, I've got some very elementary life instructions for you. And much like this list that comes from these kids, these instructions are birthed from life experience and from failure. A lot of good experiences, or a lot of good lessons, rather, instructions we gather are from people's mistakes, because we learn a lot in the wake of our mistakes. The Bible calls it sin, and the Bible says that we are going to be people encased in human frailty that are going to experience for the rest of our lives sin. It's going to be a regular part of our lives. Something, of course, that we are to work on to control and to mitigate and to try and lessen in our lives, but... Sin is a part of reality, not only for the non-Christian, but even for the Christian. We struggle with it. We make wrong decisions. We do things that don't live up to the high moral standards of God. And all it takes is a cursory overview of the Ten Commandments to realize it's not just behavior that God's concerned with. I mean, think about the Tenth Commandment. You not only can you not commit adultery, you can't covet your neighbor's wife. It's an attitude. Not only can you not steal, you can't covet your neighbor's possessions. Of course, Jesus clarified it as no one else could with the kind of probing commands that he says. Well, you've heard it said that that you don't murder, but he says, what about your attitude, your hatred, your bitterness, your unforgiveness toward other people? And if we look in the reality of our lives and compare it to the clear, definitive statements of Scripture, we've come to the realization that we don't measure up. And we want to, as Christians, if you're really born again, there's this desire and this heart that beats within you that says, I want to be more and more obedient. It's a process the Bible calls sanctification. God takes the penalty of sin out of the way in a moment, instantaneously, by an act of His grace. But the process of lessening 
sin in our lives and dealing with it is a lifelong process. And this morning, I'd like to show you from 2 Samuel chapter 10 some real basic instructions, not about how to avoid sin necessarily, although that's a worthy topic for a sermon. But this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the attitude and response we ought to have after we sin. When we recognize and realize that we've done something wrong, what are the right decisions to make after we make the wrong decisions? What's the right thing to do when we realize we've done something wrong? Well, I suppose there's real simplistic answers to that, but let's illustrate it and unpack it from this real helpful and important passage in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Even as I say that, I hope what stands out in your mind is a very important, theologically significant chapter, not too far from this one, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we learned and studied the wonderful and important, significant truth that a lot of religious people don't get, and that is that God grants His favor, His grace, His kindness, His love, not because we earn it, but because He's gracious and He chooses to do it regardless of our life and our behavior. We can't be good enough for God to say, okay, here, here's my love, you've earned my acceptance. We can't do that. God's salvation in our lives, His acceptance and and adoption of my life into His family is not one based on anything I can do. It's based on His grace. We saw David's response to that in the second half of chapter 7 as he comes out and explodes with this humble, grateful, worship-filled prayer. And then in chapter 8, we see him spring into action, motivated by grace and God's unmerited favor in his life. He gets involved in doing what he should have been doing in chapter 6, and that is expanding the borders of Israel to live up to the God-given biblical parameters that he had set forth way from the beginning, way back in Genesis chapter 15. And then in chapter 9, we see a personal photograph of David's life trying to express to someone the kind of love and kindness that God has expressed to him. We see David reflecting the grace of God in his relationships with other people. Mephibosheth, this this paraplegic who has no contribution to David's kingdom at all, particularly in that culture and age, he says, I want to bless you, not for your sake. I want to bless you for the sake of someone else. I'd like to bless you for your father's sake. And then ultimately, as he reframes his intent, he says, I really want to bless you because God has blessed me. And I know what it's like to have God love me with an unmerited, unearned favor. And so I want to be kind and gracious to you. And he uses the most significant, lofty word in the Hebrew language to describe his intent. He says, I want to show you kindness. The Hebrew word, hesed. I want to show you love, faithful, committed, unearned, generous love. And then chapter 10, we see David carry out this same intent to another person. Mephibosheth, that story is nicely contained in chapter 9, but in chapter 10, we see him wanting again to express hesed, to express love, to express kindness to someone, not because of what they did, but because of what someone else had had done. And not only that, more importantly, against the backdrop of chapter 7, that he recognizes that everything he has in his life is a gift of grace, and he wants to express some of that grace to someone else. But the result in chapter 10 is much different than it is in chapter 9. The response of this gift of grace is not like Mephibosheth, who says with great sincerity and gratefulness and gratitude and and humility, thank you, David, I can't believe you've done this for me, as he pulls himself up to the king's table. In chapter 10, unfortunately, David's overture of grace, his his act of kindness, his invitation to, to love and establish a covenant, kind, faithful friendship with this foreign king is rebuffed. Look at it in the context in verse number one. The Bible says in 
2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, that in the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I'll show kindness. There's our word, circle it, it's important. The Hesed love of God. I'm going to show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father had, had shown kindness to me. Though the immediate cause was that his dad had done something kind to David. But David, we know, learned to be gracious and loving in this way because God had been gracious and loving toward him. So David puts together a delegation of men and is going to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. Bottom of verse 2, but when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles, the consultants, the high-ranking officials in the Ammonite kingdom leaned over to Hanan, their new king, and said, Hey, uh, king, do you really think Dave has got sincere motives here? Do you think he's honoring your father by sending men to express his sympathy? I mean, that's what he says. I mean, that's what it seems to be on the surface. But don't you think David maybe has sent this group of men to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? They greet David's act of kindness with suspicion, and Hanan buys into it. And in verse 4 it says, Hanan sees David's men. He shaved off half of the man's beards. Now, that in a Jewish culture is uh, something as undignifying as anything else, except perhaps the other thing they do to them here. They cut off their garments at the middle of their buttocks. That's humiliating for any of us, I suppose. I was going to say picture that, but I really don't want you to picture that. (laughs) Humiliating experience, delegation of ambassadors. There they are, sent in an act of kindness, and here they are mistreated and humiliated in the most base way. And Hanan sends them away. Well, that'll teach him. David was told about this in verse 5. He sent messengers to greet the men. They were greatly humiliated. Of course they were. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards have grown. Then you can come back to Jerusalem a few miles away. Now you look at this and you say, well, this is just really unfair. And it's frustrating. Because we have every reason to believe in this text, not only because the text itself says it, but because the pattern of David's behavior in chapter 9 was very much like it. This magnanimous expression of his kindness toward people that didn't deserve it. And here David does the same. And in all sincerity, he does an act of kindness. And that act of kindness is met with great indignation, frustration, anger, cruelty, evil, sin. Now... I suppose you look at it carefully, you say, well, in, in, in reality, technically, David wasn't the, uh, wasn't the object here. He, he, I suppose, was the indirect one that was hurt. But, but really what Hanan and his men did was they humiliated the, the messengers. But of course, it's clear and it's obvious. And anybody reading this says, well, that's an insult not just to the messengers. That's an insult to David because those, those messengers represented David. And you recognize if you humiliate the messenger, you humiliate the one who, who sent him. David was trying to be kind. But I suppose you could sneak some things into the text in your imagination and, and think that perhaps maybe the, these guys came in with some, some snotty attitude. Maybe they, they marched into the king's presence and, and there was something suspicious about them. Or maybe they didn't greet the king in just the right way. Or, or perhaps these Israelite ambassadors stepped up and, and said something or snickered at each other when they, when they saw the outfit of the Ammonite. Who knows? Maybe they did something that, that provoked this king and led the king to believe what the noble suggested, that David really didn't have his best interest in mind. But nevertheless, regardless of what the ambassadors did, much like in the modern era, you don't mess with the ambassador. You mess with the ambassador, you offend the one who sent him. 
we learned a few weeks back that God has created an interesting paradigm for us. He says to us, I've loved you, and because I've loved you, I want you to love me? No. What does the Bible say? I've loved you, and because I've loved you so much, I want you to love each other. He says in 1 John 3.16, he says, you know what? I've laid down my life for you. Therefore, you ought to lay down your lives for each other. This strange relationship with God. God says, you can't pay me back. There's no debt you can pay to me. There's nothing you can do to really enrich or enhance my life. But I'll tell you what, if there's any debt that you feel you owe to me, I want you to pay it to these people, these, these children of mine. And I suppose that's a place for us to start in recognizing the attitude we ought to have towards sin. When you and I sin, I would think most of us would say, I, don't, I, I don't, can't look at a sin that I've committed this week that was really a sin against God. I haven't called God any names. I haven't had a bad attitude toward God. I mean, God pretty much is, is, is there. He's, he's out lofty. He's out there. I mean, the sins that I've did this week, the, the, the failures of my life, they probably have been directed at, at, at people. You see, the Bible's really clear. Not only is God impressed when we love his kids, and not only does it warm his heart when he sees us acting lovingly toward each other, but the Bible makes it really clear when you are bad to each other, God takes it personally. He feels as though that if I were to say something critical, if I were to say something unfair, if I were to be hurtful, if I were to gossip behind your back, if I were to say something about you or do something towards you that was negative, mean, or cruel, That in a very real sense, the God of heaven who sits enthroned trillions of miles away is hurt personally by that. Matthew 25 makes that crystal clear. Not only does he laud the righteous in this great eschatological picture of the king sitting on the throne dividing the people like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, but he says not only does he say the righteous should be lauded because whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me, but he turns to the unrighteous and, you know, he says the same basic thing. If you've been cruel, mean, if you've deprived these people, then you have been cruel and mean and you've deprived me. Do you recognize that that's the way this paradigm ought to work in our mind, not only as it relates to loving each other, but it ought to work that way when we think about our own sin? In other words, this week, if you were to think of the things that you've done that have been displeasing to God, they've, they've been less than God's perfect standard, they haven't measured up to the Word of God, that those things that you've done in reality have been personal, they've been injurious to God Himself. Well, we didn't mean it that way, but, but that's what happens. Because when we sin against a brother or sister in Christ, we sin directly against God. That's why David can stand back in the wake of his greatest moral failure. And in Psalm 51, pin the words of that song. And he gets to the apex of this song and he says this. Can you imagine? You've just committed adultery and you've just committed murder. And then he says these words. Against you and you only have I sinned. Can you think about that? Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, I, I'm going to object to that. I mean, you've, you've really sinned against a lot of people. You've sinned against Uriah's family. You've sinned against Bathsheba. You've hurt people. But David recognizes when I sin, the ultimate injury, the ultimate offense, the ultimate affront is to God and his kindness. David expresses kindness to Hanan. Hanan repays his kindness with evil, with hurt. Do you recognize that if we were to really get a sense of what we need to feel when we sin, what we need to experience on the other side of a wrong decision. It should be the feeling of an incredible inequity that's taken place. 
If I can make it practical for you, it's like dividing a sheet of paper and on one side of that page listing the incredible things that God has done for you this week. He's given you good health. He's given you a great place to live. He's given you friends. He's given you family members. He's given you all these things. Uh, he's given you the ability to make money. He's given you the ability to do all the things that you do. You've experienced sunsets and sunrises and good health and good meals and whatever else you've experienced. And those are all blessings that come from God. They're all gifts lavished upon you by a gracious, giving, loving God. And then make a list on the right-hand side and start listing the things that you've done that have not measured up to God's standards. And though they may have been directed toward a friend, toward a family member, toward some person or even some thing, ultimately the Bible says that is injurious to God. And when you compare those two and you say, this is the kindness that God has expressed to me and this is the sin that has ultimately hurt the God that's been so good to me, that should create a kind of loathing in our heart that makes us hate sin in a new way, in a fresh way. If you're taking notes, I put it this way. Hopefully you can see it in the historical setting, and I want us to see it in our lives, particularly on the other side of our sin. We need to hate the inequity of our sin. We need to hate the inequity of what really happened when I poked God in the eye with my behavior, and God has done nothing in my week but pour out and lavish His love on me. Do you see that inequity? Should it hurt? You bet it should. And yet so often the Christian life is reduced to a few simple prayers that we recite after we realize we've done something wrong. We say, well, I know how God works. We type in the key code. We got the password. The password is, oh, God, forgive me. I confess my sins. Please, you know, restore my relationship with you. And we can coldly, just indicatively throw out these words and say, oh, God, I confess my sins. And I know you're faithful. You're righteous. You forgive my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Good night, God. Thanks for your forgiveness. When in reality, on the other side of a wrong decision, the first thing that ought to well up in our hearts is the kind of thing that Paul praised the Corinthians for in their repentance. It was indignation. It was frustration. It was hatred for their sin. Why did they hate their sin so much? Because when they compared it to all the good that God had given them and all the injury and all the offense and all the affront that it was to God, they say, this doesn't work and it should hurt us. That's why prayers of confession ought to be coupled with tears because it reaches to the heart of what's really happening when we sin. When we sin, we are offending the kindest person, the most loving person, the most generous person in our lives. Just this week, I saw a mom with her son. Her son was probably 10, 12 years old in a public setting, in a public place, and there they were, going about their business, but I happened to notice in their dialogue that this mom was probably the nicest mother I, I'd ever seen, dote over a, a 12-year-old. And she was so kind, and she spoke so, so nicely in such nice tones, and then I listened to the young pre-adolescent boy respond to his mother. You've seen this, haven't you? Mom is as nice as a mom can be, and this kid who thinks the world revolves around him acts toward his mother with such disrespect with such hurtful words, with such cavalier comments and such dishonoring statements. I wanted to take that kid, <laughs> pull him behind the building and, and talk nicely to him about, uh, <laughs> about how blessed he was to have a mom like that. Because how many people don't? And you and I as children of the king have a parent that dotes on us. We have a parent, a spiritual father who gives us and gives us and keeps giving to us all the good things we have in our lives. And we may not see it as a direct offense, 
because it's indirect. And you may say, well, you've talked a lot about offending Christians, and I recognize that God has a personal relationship with them, but he doesn't feel that way toward the vile and the rebellious person that I'm angry with or that I've hurt this week. You bet there is a connection. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot it down, look it up later in James chapter 3. Verse number 9, it says that we should not be people who out of our mouth praise God in a worship service like this and then go out and curse men because those men, the Bible says, are created in the image of God. Do you recognize that the kinds of sins that we commit, even if they're against the most vile person on earth, God takes personally because he created them? Oh, he may not be their spiritual heavenly father, but he is their father by by means of creation. And God says, you have no right to be ugly, mean, cruel, sinful against anybody. And when you are, it offends me. We need to learn to hate the inequity of our sin. And perhaps like this passage, we should see it that clearly. God gives good, we return it with evil. Another passage you may want to jot down, Psalm 109, I think it's verse 5. It really stung this week when I read it. It said, they repay my kindness with hatred. They repay my friendship with evil. I mean, think about the way that God gives to us. Sin ought to break our hearts. We ought not punch in the little keystrokes that we think will get our our relationship all healed up without really allowing it to affect our heart. Still in our passage, 2 Samuel 10, look what happens in verse 6. Oh, it's a terrible inequity. And perhaps it started to dawn on the king of the Ammonites and the Ammonite nobles that maybe they'd done a wrong thing. This was really a bad thing. Look at how it's stated in the text, verse 6. When the Ammonites realized they had become, I love the poetic language of the scripture, become a stench in David's nostrils. It says in the middle of verse 6 that they were really sorry, they repented, they sent a fruit basket to the the ambassadors, they they asked for the forgiveness of the king, and they said, please forgive us, we we blew it, we didn't realize you were really being nice to us. You see that all there in verse 6? You don't see that because they did what we often do. They took a defensive posture. You're listening to Focal Point and a message called The Right Response to Wrong Decisions from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you missed any part of Pastor Mike's study through 2 Samuel, you can catch up online and listen on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download these messages on your favorite podcasting app or stream them using the free Focal Point app. You know, there are plenty of teachers in our world who are more than happy to water down God's message, saying what people want to hear. But we need the unaltered, unadulterated Word of God to transform our hearts, lives, and culture. That's why Bible teaching ministries like Focal Point are so important. So will you help us expand our reach so we can get this message out to even more people? Your support helps us reach a wider audience with biblical teaching that doesn't pull punches or shy away from difficult truths. Thank you for investing in spreading the truth of the gospel. And when you give today, we'll express our gratitude with a practical book titled All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. This powerful book is perfect for anyone who questions the validity of their salvation. Request this practical guide to understanding God's grace when you give by calling 888 888- Three two zero five eight eight five. That's eight 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 three two zero fifty eight eighty five. Or go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box twenty eight fifty, Laguna Hills, California nine two six five four. 
And remember to request the book All of Grace when you contact us. Go to focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for our devotional email. Each week, you'll receive an uplifting devotional from Pastor Mike, a reminder to turn your thoughts toward God. And it's free. Go to focalpointradio.org. Well, we look forward to connecting with you by email, by phone, and through social media. You can find our Facebook page by going to facebook.com slash focalpointministries. Follow us on Twitter by going to twitter.com slash focalpointradio. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Wednesday right here on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.